The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning and welcome to everyone with us, those here in this space and those joining us on live stream. I am worship associate Mari Magaloni Ramos and I am joined on the chancel uh, by worship associate Richard Davis Lowell. The two of us will be preaching together today. Before we get to the subject of our worship this morning, I'd like to start by acknowledging the people who are making this service possible. Thank you to our guest musician, Elliot um, Etzkorn, our song leader, Mark Sumner. Thanks to Alicia Cover for the order of service, to Eric Shackelford for running the live stream cameras, and to Jonathan Silk, who's back. We've missed you, Jonathan. Yay, for running the audio. And thanks also to our live chat moderator, Santana Gonzalez Gomez, to our sexton, sexton Matias Salazar, and to Athena Papadakos for the gorgeous flowers. Thank you to our head usher too, Linda Messner. We hope all of you here and on live stream have an order of service so you can follow along in worship. For those of you joining us on live stream, if you have any issues or problems at any time, please know that Santana is online to answer any questions you might have. A quick COVID note, masks are no longer required, but you are encouraged to wear one or do whatever you need to feel safe and comfortable. To my left is a section against the wall marked reserved for those who want to be in a masked only section. We know that it continues to be challenging for folks who are immune compromised and folks who are at high risk to gather in person. And we are so, so happy that you are with us today. So today, Richard and I will be alternating on the pulpit, exploring the parameters of reconciliation, by which we mean restoration of relationship with others, relationship with ourselves, and with ourselves and the divine, whatever that divine source is to us. We will not be talking about mediation, which is transactional, nor will we be talking about resolution of conflict, so much as what it means to practice, to embody integrity when we are faced with existential pressure. Today, July 6, 2023, is a day of deep mourning because it marks the 78th anniversary of our dropping the bomb on Hiroshima. This day also marks the Assumption of Mary, an event which many around the world celebrate as a beacon of hope. These two anniversaries hold more meaning than can be processed in one sermon, and Richard and I are not theologians. Our hope is that by entering into sacred time together, all of us, and juxtaposing the subjects of Hiroshima and Mary, we might yield some insights about the nature of reconciliation. We are grateful for your presence as we enter into this complicated conversation, Richard and I, and we are grateful for our liberal, unitarian, universalist religion, which affirms and promotes the right to use our conscience in our search for truth and meaning. 
Let us start the search now by joining Richard in our unison chalice lighting. Please join me in our unison chalice lighting. The words are printed in your bulletin. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. service lists upcoming events and links to opportunities to connect. Please engage in any or all that are of interest to you. I want to call special attention to the following. First, I invite you to please read the fraud warning at the top of happenings uh, in your order of service, that section, uh, to protect yourself and the church from a fraudulent text that has been pretending to come from our senior minister, Reverend Vanessa Rush Southern. Our newest members, Jennifer Hutchins and Christine Valentine, will be staffing our auction table today after the service, so stop by and say aloha and thank them for their participation in the growth of our church. And don't forget to register for the extravaganza of joy, which will happen on Friday, August 18th. I look forward to seeing you there. There is a newcomer orientation today after the service at 1230 in the fireside room. Uh, come and meet some of our members and learn more about our congregation and our Unitarian Universalist community. There will be an art reception also today after the service until 3 o'clock in the MLK and TSK rooms. Um, the order of service has the hours wrong, so it's after the service today until 3, and it will feature Jamie Urquhart's work. 
and a new weekly grief group will begin meeting on Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. starting on September 9th. There is also going to be a walk for immig immigrant rights on Monday, August 7th at 11 a.m. Migrants will uh, walk 40 miles from San Jose and Petaluma to San Francisco to remind Congress it's been nearly 40 years of inaction on immigration legislation. So you can join a contingent of UUSF members and others to walk with the Petaluma marchers on Monday, August 7th. We can meet at the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco on the San Francisco side at 11 a.m. Now, I'd also like to mention that our offering today will be for Community Unitarian Universalist Church in Plano, Texas. Early on the morning of July 23rd, Community Unitarian Universalist Church was the target of a firebomb attack. Luckily, no one was injured and the damage to the building was contained to the front entrance area and a worship service was able to be held in the building on Sunday morning. The incident has been difficult for the congregation and staff as it is being investigated as a potential hate crime. So being a liberal congregation in an atmosphere of mistrust and hate is difficult during these times, so today's offering will be collected to support CUUC in recovering from this attack. In addition, Cards will be available after the service for people to sign and show community support and love during this difficult time. We thank you in advance for your generosity for our sister church in Plano. And I believe that's all I wanted to call attention to this morning. And now let's take a moment to greet one another. There will be a musical cue to come back. And that, my friends, is the sound of community. It's beautiful. So bringing us back together, will you join me in our unison covenant? The words are printed in your bulletin, followed by our sung doxology. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another.
In June of this year, our senior minister, the Reverend Vanessa Rush Southern, wrote these words in preparation for our moment of remembrance. I found them inspired, and I hope you do as well. Life is this wild paradox. It is both full of brokenness and also stunningly alive with beauty and grace. As people of faith, we deny neither, but rather live between and among both, inviting one another to step into this world as both witness and participant in the whole of it. And so this morning in our ritual of remembrance, we indeed make space for the whole of it. This morning, we ring our gong six times in recognition of the July 23rd firebombing of our UU congregation in Plano, Texas. Church leaders had been working with police since a June 25th incident wherein a hate group affiliated with a right-wing content creator intruded on worship services. Despite damage to the front of the church building, Sunday morning worship services went on as normal, with Plano police providing extra security. And we ring our gong for a seventh time in recognition and celebration of the new International African Museum, which opened in late June in Charleston, South Carolina. The building with its unique overwater construction combined with a challenging mission to tell the stories of enslaved Americans reminds us that truth and reconciliation take time, treasure, and sacrifice. But oh, how sweet the sound when it finally arrives.
Let us continue to center ourselves in meditation with a poem called Beginners by Denise Levertov. But we have only begun to love the earth. We have only begun to imagine the fullness of life. How could we tire of hope? So much is in bud. How can desire fail? We have only begun to imagine justice and mercy, only begun to envision how it might be to live as siblings with beast and flower, not as oppressors. Surely our river cannot already be hastening into the sea of non-being. Surely it cannot drag in silt all that is innocent. Not yet, not yet. There is too much broken that must be mended. Too much hurt we have done to each other that cannot yet be forgiven. We have only begun to know the power that is in us if we would join our solitudes in the communion of struggle. So much is unfolding that must complete its gesture. So much is in bud. Amen. As mentioned earlier, our offering this morning will go to support Community Unitarian Universalist Church in Plano, Texas. If you give a check, please just write in today's date and special offering in the memo. And if you give online using our online portal, please also indicate this is for the special offering and give today's date. Thank you in advance for your generosity. And now our morning's offering will be both given and gratefully received.
Mari, you know, when we agreed on this topic, remember, I told you we'd be playing with fire. But you and I both realized that we were onto something special and we just couldn't let it go. We don't really get to talk about important things that challenge us very often. So here we go. Let's get into a little good trouble, as I shared with someone this morning. Before I go into, into what I've learned from considering these events any further, I want to acknowledge, recognize, and pay respect to those men and women who defended our country, including those who wrestled with the decisions to use nuclear weapons. The bombing of Hiroshima and the observance of the Assumption of Mary into heaven, these are huge events in the landscape of human affairs. In this sacred space today, and at this time of year, we will explore, interpret, and lift up both for further reflection and examination. They are very different events. The example of Mary's life, the hope of Assumption Day, and the horror of Hiroshima. They may seem jarringly contrasting, but both, on deeper reflection, guide me to the same conclusion. For millions of Catholics and others, Assumption Day represents the recognition of Mary's life lived in concert with the call of the sacred. For many, her life's example embodied sacrifice, redemption, and reconciliation of human existence with the divine, and her assumption into heaven, bypassing death entirely, is the culmination of a life spent in service to the sacred. For millions more, the story of the bombings of Hiroshima and three days later, Nagasaki, reminds us of the wages of sin, of war, and of the ultimate price of destruction. In contrast to the premise or promise of eternal life, the dropping of the atomic bombs on military and civilian targets resulted in never-before-witnessed destruction, long-lasting consequences, and knowledge that humanity now holds tightly in its hands the seeds of its own extermination. As Mari and I wrestled with these events, both sacred and profane, I was struck by the fact that there were no easy answers to the issues that divided us then. There aren't any now, and there won't be any in the future. As I prepared my remarks, I was reminded again and again that any attempt at quick and easy reconciliation with the sins of our past is a fool's errand. Reconciliation is not easy, it is not cheap, it is not easily entered into. On deeper reflection, and as these events challenge us in different ways, they can also teach us what is promised through a commitment to faith and reconciliation, something we hope to share with you this morning. Richard, 
Oh, Richard. I know that when you said that we're playing with fire, you're being self-effacing and in no way making light of the anniversaries that fall on this day. Out of respect for the subjects we're handling, I'll be offering my personal experiences and perspectives as explorations, not declarations. And I hope that the holes in my reasoning will be visible and serve as openings for deeper discernment for us all. I'm aware that the topic of Mary is sacred to many. It's sacred to me too, but not in an orthodox Catholic way. I'm also conscious of the fact that I will be using gendered terms for the divine in this narrative because the story of Mary is characterized in this way. For me, the feminine and masculine divine are partial and imperfect attempts to describe the indescribable, <laughs> the source of life. Still, I do connect with larger spiritual implications that can be gleaned from the story. I dedicate my sermon to my grandmother, my abuelita, Guadalupe Martinez Ramos, a devout Catholic who was named after the indigenous Mexican virgin of Guadalupe. Mary has been in my consciousness since I can remember because in Mexico, she's ubiquitous. But there is a memory from early childhood that stands out for me. I was laying down for an afternoon nap in my grandmother's bedroom, and I was looking at a framed picture of Mary that was on a shelf next to the bed. My grandmother had placed a doily and some candles in front of it. It began to dawn on me slowly that I could smell the candles softened wax because my grandmother had been lighting them in private. This rattled me. Until that moment, it hadn't occurred to me that my abuelita, the sun around which my whole family, and by extension, my whole world revolved, my abuelita could have a life somewhere beyond my scope and reach. I lay in the quiet of what I now understood was Abuelita's private sanctuary and stared at the picture of Mary trying to comprehend. In the picture, Mary was holding a baby, but his proportions were those of a grown man, giving him a doll-like quality. I got the impression that the baby who was sitting on her left forearm was fidgety because one of his sandals was falling off. There were two little cherubs whizzing around their heads like fat bumblebees, playful little pests. They were playing musical instruments. What delighted me even more was that the baby had both of his tiny little doll hands wrapped around his mama's thumb as he watched them. Mary seemed unperturbed by the stir. The picture made me smile. Mary reminded me of my abuelita, who was just as patient and indulgent with me. I could see why they were friends. Comforted by the pleasant scene, my disquiet evaporated and I, I dozed off. I now know that what I was actually looking at was a 13th century painting called Our Lady of Perpetual Help, one of a class of icons called 
Gardiotisa, which means having a heart or showing sympathy, mercy, and compassion. An article from Catholic News, the Catholic News Agency clarifies what was actually happening in the painting. The doll-like baby I saw was the Christ child, shown with an adult face and highbrow, indicating his divine mind of infinite intelligence. The bumblebee cherubs were the archangels Gabriel and Michael, holding not musical instruments, but instruments of the child's future passion, the cross, the lance, and the sponge. So the baby wasn't fidgety. He was frightened, and it jumped into Mary's arms for protection, causing him to lose his right sandal. Those sweet little hands were gripping her thumb out of terror. And the unperturbable calm I saw in Mary's face, it was resignation. So who is Mary? This woman whose courage and compassion are so great that God himself runs to her for comfort. His mother. The primogenial author of his understanding about what it means to be in a relationship. She is his compassionate guide but she is not soft. Having myself raised a son, I find it striking that in the painting, Mary is not pulling her baby away from the frightful visage of the angels. Instead, she is modeling spiritual grit by not shielding him from the reality of the pain he must endure if he is to mature and reconcile with the world. Still, she exemplifies compassion and fidelity by holding her trembling child and facing his destiny with him. In her book about the Gnostic Gospels, author Elaine Pagel describes the relationship between mother and son. She writes, quote, often in the Gnostic texts, the creator is castigated for his arrogance nearly always by a superior female power, unquote. Pagel notes that according to texts discovered at a site called Nag Hammadi, the mother of God at times objects to his behavior and tells him so directly, quote, he became arrogant saying, it is I who am God and there is no other apart from me. And a voice came from the realm of absolute power, saying, You are wrong, Samael, which means God of the blind. End quote. Certain Gnostics called the Divine Mother wisdom, the great creative power from whom thing, all things originate. In a passage from the book that is relatable to anyone who has raised a teenager, we can see the parenting process in action when Mother Wisdom steps in to mitigate a harm that her son has caused in an act of impulsivity. Quote, when the Creator became angry with the human race because they did not worship and honor him as Father and God, 
he sent forth a flood upon them that he might destroy them all. But wisdom opposed him, and Noah and his family were saved in the ark by means of the sprinkling of light that proceeded from her." Unquote. Mary, the universal mother, knows that the process of maturing requires not just tempering of the ego, but its full surrender. She knows that her son will eventually learn that he can't coerce his creation to love him by using force. He will have to earn their love. Only when he evolves to the point where he is prepared to sacrifice himself, and by sacrifice, I don't just mean dying on the cross, but living a complete life among us, accompanying us, body and soul, without privileging himself to avoid suffering. Only then can he meaningfully enter into living covenant with his creation. It takes time to earn trust. It can only be substantiated by living a life, a life worthy of it. His sacrifice will show that he has stopped using us and has started loving us, that he has matured from incautious child to compassionate father, that he has become worthy of the title. To me, this is the story of reconciliation. There is no quick way to attain it, no quick fix, no shortcuts, because it is a process of maturing, of building trust. And that takes, well, the time it takes. For me, the crucifixion is the climax of the story, but if we believe in autonomy, then the denouement looks like going back to the beginning and starting over again every time a new person comes into the world, every time a new person enters our lives. Reconciliation isn't a one-off thing. It's a never-ending story, a story that invites us to become our lady of perpetual help to one another, to share our wisdom, to hold each other in faithful accountability, to give each other grace to grow, to accompany one another with compassion, with relentless devotion as we find our way to spiritual maturity each in our own time. I believe that heaven is here, heaven is now, that it is what we make of it moment by precious moment together. I don't describe to the belief that the world is a mess because humanity is at core evil or broken. I'm apt to think that the world is a mess because it's full of super intelligent doll babies. Because intelligence isn't wisdom. We keep chasing our toys, the toys we make, into the street without looking both ways. So maybe the world, Richard, maybe the world is a nursery where the babies have run amok. 
I've never challenged what I was told and what I learned about the bombings. It was complicated, I heard. It was necessary to end the war, President Eisenhower. The only way to avoid an invasion of Japan and greater loss of life, General Douglas MacArthur. A terrible necessity, Winston Churchill. Most of us in this room were affected in some way by the wartime use of atomic weapons, if only in our collective memory, through the experience of our parents or grandparents. It's still in the collective memory of our country and certainly in our culture, witness references to the Cold War and peace through mutually assured destruction. Everything I read and learned about it, I accepted in silence, but something continued to gnaw at me. Today, I recognize that if I don't wrestle with settled truths that gnaw at me, how can I speak up with authenticity? And if we don't address issues authentically, how can we collectively avoid the mistakes of the past? Two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, the first on August 6th and the second on August 9th, 1945. Over three days, between 129 and 226,000 people died, the majority of whom were civilians. Today, I have no ambiguity around the morality of those bombings. Echoing the words of the owner of Time Life and Fortune magazines at the time, the equivalent of CNN, MSNBC, and perhaps Fox News today, its owner, Henry Luce, wrote, we have used the atom bomb to destroy two Japanese cities, killing and maiming hundreds of thousands of their innocent citizens. This is the most ghastly crime in history. It is a crime against civilization, he wrote. The bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were wrong, as wrong as it would have been had the Empire of Japan bombed San Jose and Oakland. And so today, we remember the civilians, the men, the women, the children, who suffered and died in the world's only instance of wartime nuclear weapons use executed by our beloved country. This is a big topic, and my words are hardly the first to wrestle with it. When I read the comments in support of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they're all from those who held the power to dictate what is right and what is wrong by saying as much. Those members of a particular caste in our society who show no shame in telling me, without equivocation, how to feel and to think about events, telling me, even today, that they are creating more freedom by removing any ambiguity, shades of doubt, or equivocation around who is worthy and who is unworthy. But you know, my mother told me, Richard, people will tell you up is down, black is white, and right is wrong. Even though I believe her with all my heart, somehow, for some reason, I still want to be on the side of those who insist they are telling the truth. Deep inside, something wishes I could believe the story that it was the right thing to do, that there was no other way to end the war, 
But right there, that very struggle tells me I'm wrestling with a lie. I remember the air raid drills in Grand Forks, North Dakota. It's bleak out there. In the summer, the dragonflies are as big as your hands. Head out into the halls with your coat. Pull your coat over your head and crouch down, my teacher said. Run, duck, and cover, they called it. This would protect us from the nuclear bomb going off somewhere nearby. I remember wondering, though, I can see the sun down the hall, coming through the glass doors of my school, and even with my coat over my head, I wanted to go outside. What was this all about? And somehow I thought, all of this isn't really going to help. Out of the mouths of babes. The truth is that our military planners estimated that if the US used a nuclear weapon and was met with a response, over 600 million people would perish, a hundred holocausts, according to Daniel Ellsberg in his 2017 book, The Doomsday Machine. Today, the population of the entire United States is 340 million people. 60 years ago, when those figures were compiled, it was 180. So why are lies so compelling? Maybe because the truth is less so. I have found it too hard to face the truth when our lives are built on something else, too hard to dismantle racism, oppression, sexism, transphobia, if all we've agreed to know and believe are lies, deceptions, half-truths, and falsehoods. And sometimes those deceptions hide in plain sight. I remember the images of the Japanese in my favorite cartoon, reruns of Bugs Bunny from that time. Bugs Bunny, quite a character, and I saw myself in him. He seemed so comfortable with his energy, fooling the hunter with androgynous hijinks. In those cartoons, he could be a buxom Valkyrie one minute and in a slinky evening dress another, something that appealed to me all while fooling the great white hunter, Elmer Fudd, who was constantly thwarted in his attempts to make things the way they should be. I'm the hunter, I'm right, and I have a gun, those images said to me. Bugs wasn't having any of it, and merry subversion ensued. But there was one cartoon I saw, maybe you remember it, the picture and caricature of an Asian man on a poster in Japanese military uniform with a human but menacing face. I remember it, and the lesson was clear. Here was someone to really fear. It was over in a cartoon moment, but the message was clear. And the message to me, if you listen to me, pretend hard enough, you can join me in fearing them too. The hunter with a gun? Don't think about him. He won't be after you, Richard. Just close your eyes and your mind to what you see around you. And never mind the light at the end of the hall. If you hate like I'm telling you to hate, you will be safe. That was the message. But the truth is, 
In a flash of the mushroom cloud, we will all be consumed. Listening to you, Richard, I'm struck by the stories we use as vessels of avoidance, quick fixes, so to speak, like the drop and cover story in which a school desk and a coat can save you from a nuclear blast, the predecessor to the equally irresponsible school shooter drills of today, as far as I'm concerned. We need to keep looking for the holes in the stories we tell ourselves. We need to, to ask, who is bearing the brunt for our comfort? Because when we flip sacrifice on its head by making it fear-based instead of love-based, we turn it into a superstitious or talismanic protection against the pain and hardship of life. Reason and compassion go out the window and we start the whole washed in the blood bumper sticker type of magical thinking that marks some, uh, that makes some folk think that uh, they are in a different category from the rest of humanity. Understanding the difference between gift of self and gift to self is not a small thing. It's crucial because the difference can be devastating to those we deem less worthy of compassion than ourselves, those we other. We, we killed 80,000 civilians and tens of thousands more who died horribly of burns and radiation exposure in Hiroshima. And we did it again just three days later to Nagasaki, where we killed 40,000 more civilians in an instant. I am not a Pollyanna. I understand that World War II was complicated. I know the, that Imperial Japan was as mad as it was brutal. I know it allied itself with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. It was, it was an appalling situation. And I also believe that we have a right to protect ourselves, but, I know a historian who insists that the bomb was the right thing to do because it saved so many more lives than it took. I asked him, so if you knew that dropping the bomb on yourself and your hometown where your family lives, if you knew that dropping the bomb on yourself and your hometown would have stopped the war and saved the same number of people, would you do it? He said no. So, we washed ourselves in their blood? I don't have answers, but I know that what we did in Hiroshima wasn't right. Nuclear weapons should tell us something about our astonishing capacity. Why is it so hard for us to imagine that we can manifest atomic-level compassion in the world instead of surrendering to the belief that destruction is the inevitable path i am become death destroyer of worlds as oppenheimer famously quoted from the bhagavad-gita let us detonate the power of mary now i am become mother wisdom of worlds i visited japan a few years ago Several impressions remained with me. First impression, it's incredibly neat. No garbage on the streets or sidewalks. It's not as if 
there's an obsession with neatness, they just don't throw things away on the street. Because, second observation, there's no garbage cans, refuse cans, or places to throw away trash in public. It's just not done. I have no illusions about understanding the complexities of Japanese culture, traditions, and practices, but I do know clean when I see it, and I do know peace. The Japanese have rebuilt Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and in 1954, nine years after the bombing, the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park opened. President Joe Biden quietly and quickly visited the park recently, becoming only the second U.S. president after President Obama to do so. President Biden issued no comment on what he saw at the memorial, much less offer up a long-sought apology. No U.S. president has ever done so or is likely to ever do so. But before true healing begins, I believe on this anniversary of those horrific events, if we are to prevent a terrible reoccurrence of that violence, we will have to find a way. Starved 
standing, finding comfort in your personal space or by sharing space with others, by joining hands or, more importantly, hearts, knowing that in this moment we are all together. Receive our benediction. And now in our comings and goings, may the light of love shine upon us, out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Thank you.